0: Amen. Good morning, church. It's so good to be together again. Like Pastor Daniel said, I'm obviously not him. I'm Derek. Nice to meet you guys, if I haven't met you yet. I am Daniel's little brother and also the Chi Alpha director, so we'll get into that in a second. But I do want us to commit to something right now, okay, church? We need to commit to praying for Daniel and Emily. I'm terrified for their sanity. <laughs> They've got three children now, under, like, three that sounds, that's like pop, 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 they're going, so it's good, but I'm a little scared that I'm going to lose my family, because they're going to succumb, and they're also outnumbered, and I can just see Jane taking over the household. <laughs> so the least I could do to help them prepare is preach for a couple weeks, amen, amen, so pray for them. But for those of you, if this is your first time or we've never met, my name is Derek, and like I said, I'm the Chi Alpha Director, which that's just our ministry to college students in the Cedar Valley. And so that means I get to hang out with 18 to 22-year-olds, which is also why my voice is almost gone. I was playing games with college students all weekend, and I'm a little competitive, so I kind of started screaming at them and woke up regretting that. But I did win, so it was okay. (laughs) If we haven't gotten the chance to meet, I'd love to meet you after service. So speaking of games and sports, I really love watching sports. Specifically, I love watching the NFL and the NBA. In regards to the NBA, I'm a huge LeBron James fan. I loved him with the Cleveland Cavaliers, the Miami Heat, going back to the Cavs, and now I'm a Lakers fan. Wherever LeBron goes, I follow, and I don't care if you're judging me. That doesn't bother me. I'm confident (laughs) in myself. And usually, to be honest, being a LeBron fan is pretty fun. His teams are usually very good. Not this year, but that's a sore subject. Please don't bring it up. So I've become pretty used to seeing my favorite basketball team in the championship. Actually for eight years in a row, LeBron made the NBA Finals. I became pretty used to getting to see my favorite team in the championship. Getting to the finals didn't actually mean a whole lot to me. I was not excited or satisfied with anything less than an NBA championship. Seeing my favorite team make the playoffs, the finals, I didn't do much. kind of became desensitized to it. Yeah, great. LeBron's in the finals for the eighth time. If we don't win, what's the point? Why even watch? See, I'm a very spoiled NBA fan. His greatness and success didn't do much for me. It doesn't amaze me because I'm pretty used to it. Let's counter this with my other sport the NFL. My favorite football team is the newly termed Washington Commanders. They're awful, just (laughs) terrible, and they've been terrible my entire life. Since I've started watching them, they've made the playoffs five times. Five times in 22 years. (laughs) Out of those five times, want to guess how many times they've won? Once. One time. Since I've watched the NFL, I've seen them win one playoff game. It was when I was nine years old zero playoff victories since then. I'm 25 now. That's sad. So when they make the playoffs, I am pumped. One time they made the playoffs, and I got a bloody nose because I was so excited. That's a separate story. But I get ecstatic. I shout. I cry. I praise the Lord. We go into seasons of fasting because my world has changed forever. They don't have to win the playoff game. I don't expect that. That would be ridiculous to expect something like that, right? My world's turned upside down when they make it to the playoffs. Heck, if they win a regular season game, I'm feeling pretty good, to be honest. It's not a common experience, so I'm like, I'm on top of the world, like Taylor, we're celebrating, we're going out tonight. The commanders won. She's like, it's the preseason, Derek, calm down. If they won a playoff game, I think I would crumble from joy. This is an honest thing. I think I would not survive if they won the Super Bowl. I don't know what would happen to me. I think I would just implode from the inside from so much shock and it it won't happen, so it's okay. See, there's a stark difference. With the Commanders, I'm pumped if they win a regular season game, but LeBron doing anything less than making the NBA Finals and winning doesn't move the needle for me because I've become too desensitized to him. It's too familiar to me. We live in a world where greatness has become too familiar. Specifically in our cultural context of being in the middle of of Iowa, we live in a world where Jesus has become too familiar. Most of us have heard the stories. Most of us know that Jesus died on a cross for us, that he forgave our sins. Yeah, we've heard it before no big deal, right? The God of the universe lived among us and was perfect and shows never-ending mercy to me. Cool, what's for lunch? We've become desensitized to the message of King Jesus. We're so used to it by living in America that we aren't phased by it. I think we're too familiar with Jesus. Familiarity can breed apathy. We are surrounded by the message of God, so it doesn't do as much for us anymore. This morning, we're going to continue our Gospel of Mark series. Last week on Easter Sunday, we looked at the story of Jesus raising Jairus, his daughter, from the dead. And as he did that, the people around were stunned. Mark 5 says this, and immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. They were immediately overcome with amazement. Overcome with amazement. That's me when the commanders went, overcome with amazement. And we're going to continue our story from Mark 5, moving into Mark chapter 6 this morning, where Jesus leaves that town where he did that miracle, and he's going to go back to his hometown of Nazareth. Nazareth is where Jesus grew up. He spent roughly 30 years there as a carpenter before he jumped into full-time ministry. Jesus' family was there. Everyone was there. Nazareth was just a simple town. It's not mentioned much in history, actually. It's, if you look throughout like, different manuscripts and different historical documents, you don't see Nazareth a whole lot. The town wasn't like cool. It says later in the Bible, what good can come out of Nazareth? So in my head, I picture Nazareth kind of like a, like a hick town that no one really liked. And so you'd think that if the Son of God came from this town, the town would be pumped, right? Like Cedar Falls is not huge, correct? But when famous people come out of here, it's a huge deal to us. You guys remember Maddie Poppy from American Idol a few years ago? There's like billboards everywhere. We're like, all hail King Maddie Poppy. We're excited that she's from here. Something cool is coming from the Cedar Valley. We're all pumped. So let's see, do you think Nazareth responds in the same way? We'll find out in Mark 6. He went away from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. The title of our message today is Faith Over Familiarity. Faith Over Familiarity. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to come and just to sit and learn more about you, God. I pray that this morning will be an encounter with you, Jesus, that our lives will be forever changed from just moments with you, King Jesus. We love you so much. Amen. Amen. So Jesus comes to his hometown, and he starts teaching them, and the people get really confused. Like, who is this guy? Isn't this the carpenter from down the road? He's Mary's son, right? I know him. There's nothing that special about him. We saw him grow up. See, they were familiar with him, so they thought, well, he can't be that special, See, Nazareth had become desensitized to Jesus, and I think sometimes we become desensitized to Jesus. We're so used to the story and person of Jesus in modern-day America that it has lost its luster. We aren't in wonder and awe over Jesus. We hear about the crucifixion and the resurrection, and it doesn't quite move us in the way that it probably should. Because in America, most of us know the story. We know that he died for us, so we think Jesus and I are probably good. We think, I believe in him. I go to church, specifically on Christmas and Easter. I give a little money when I feel like I need to. I fulfill my Christian quota, so then me and God are good. However, this is not what Jesus should do to us. We cannot get used to Jesus. That's when we start to get bored with him. We read our Bibles because we feel like we should, but it doesn't jump out at us. Nothing's moving us. Like, I know all these stories. I've read this before. It's not really moving me, so what's the point? This is us becoming desensitized when the story of God, when the story of King Jesus does not do something inside of us. Jesus is too good for us to be desensitized to him. Ask yourself this question, am I still moved by God? Do I still get excited when I read the Bible? Do I still read the Bible expecting to encounter Jesus? If you've been following Jesus a while, ask yourself, am I desensitized to this? Do you think you know all you need to know? Do we think we figured it out? Is the Bible either a non-existent part of your life or something that you do out of obligation but is boring because you feel like you've heard it all? If so, maybe it's time for a heart change. See, we must be humble and hungry enough to want fresh revelations from King Jesus, to not let ourselves become desensitized to him, to be hungry, to keep coming to Jesus, even when it feels too familiar. We want to look for new things about Jesus. We should ask ourselves, am I getting too used to this? And so we reevaluate. We don't want to get used to God because when we get used to God, it can be easy for us to forget about him. We should be thinking about Jesus, what he did for us throughout our days, right? We don't want our walks with God to just be something we do on Sunday morning. If it's just a Sunday morning experience, then we go about the rest of our important lives and thinking about the things that actually impact us. That's not where we want to be. It's like we come to church and, oh, yeah, there's a God who saved me. Cool, back to work on Monday. No. The message and person of Jesus should permeate our daily lives. As we know more about God... We think we're getting closer to God, which is good to know more things. We want to learn. But we think we're close to God just because we're familiar with him. However, familiarity is not actually what God is after. He wants more for us because being familiar with Jesus does not mean faith in Jesus. So growing up, I had really ashy elbows. like They were like gray and crusty right here. It was not the most attractive thing in the world, to be honest, However, I became pretty used to it. So like the pain of stretching my arm out from the crust falling off didn't really bother me anymore. The dirty looks from the side of the room like, oh, oh yeah, I forgot my elbows are crust. Didn't do anything for me. I was like, okay. People would say things once in a while, they're all like, ew, you're grass. Okay, it's ashy. It happens to us, okay? It never hit home though. I was familiar with my elbows. This familiarity led me to not do anything about it. I would never put lotion on them. Sometimes I wouldn't wash them. i just kind of let them stay ashy and not worry about it. This was until I met this girl, and this girl was obsessed with lotion and soft skin. She's really particular about it, just the worst. And then I married her. (laughs) And then one day, my wife Taylor has, like, I think she builds up some courage, and she confronts me. She's like, all right, Derek. Derek, you're ashy. And your scaly, scratchy elbows are starting to frustrate me. It is time to fix them." And she attacks me with like six bottles of lotion, like holds me down and sprays it on the elbows for like six weeks straight. And eventually, they're a little bit less ashy. See, I didn't believe there was anything wrong with me. So I didn't do anything to fix it. I did not care. My familiarity led me to never act on it until I was confronted. And then Taylor confronted me and attacked me with lotion for two years. And now, my elbows are not ashy anymore. I think in hope, or I just wear long sleeves so I don't have to worry about it, but even though I was, no clapping for that, okay? <laughs> uh. See, even though I was familiar with my elbows, I didn't actually know what was going on with them. I didn't know what they needed. I didn't know the importance of them, and this is what can happen with Jesus when we become too familiar with him. We don't realize what's actually important about it or what we need from him in our lives. In verses 3 and 4, we read about Jesus' family and how his own relatives didn't even believe he was the Messiah. In a different scripture, we read that Jesus' family actually thought he was crazy. They say, that, come back home, you're being too crazy. Jesus' family was very familiar with him. They knew more about him than anyone else. They saw him grow up. But even though they were familiar with Jesus, they didn't truly know him. They didn't know the truth that this person was God in the flesh. They'd heard the stories, they saw him heal people even, but they still didn't believe him, probably because of their familiarity. So then they didn't have faith in him. Jesus does not just want us to know him and know about him, he wants us to have faith in him. Something I've often wrestled with is, how do I know if I truly have faith? Like, I say I believe in Jesus, is that faith? Or is faith something more? Faith is not just words saying we believe in God, no, faith is action. Faith is obedience. Think about it. If you truly believe someone and have faith in them that they know best, you'll do what they say. If you have faith in your doctor, if they prescribe you medicine, you'll take it. If you have faith in a personal trainer, you'll listen to their instructions to get where you want to be physically. If an athlete has faith in their coach, they do the plays they call, they listen to them, they do the drills they ask of them, they do what they say because they believe in them. Faith is not just some arbitrary feeling, faith is an action. This is actually the whole reason we obey Jesus. Too often we think of the commands of Jesus just as like a moral code that if we need to follow these codes of God and then we'll be loved and we'll get accepted into heaven because we're morally correct. But that is not why Jesus gives us commands. It's not just to put rules on us and put us into a box. Jesus is not trying to steal our fun. Jesus is not trying to just get us to obey him so we can have a power trip because he needs us to obey him so he feels good about himself. No, Jesus gives us commands because he loves us. Jesus loves us so much, and Jesus is smarter than us, and he knows the best way for us to live on earth. So why would he not tell the people that he loves how to live in the best way possible? See, Jesus knows that living in the way he prescribed, often called living in the kingdom throughout the New Testament, that kingdom living is just us living the way we were designed to live. Jesus created us, so theoretically he knows the best way we will operate. We don't just obey Jesus because we should we obey Jesus because we think he's actually smarter than us. We think he's God, and we have faith to trust that he knows best, is best. If we believe Jesus is God, the creator of everything, true faith is not just saying that. True faith is being obedient because we trust he's smarter than us. In our Chi Alpha, we have this saying that I say all the time, God's laws are not motivations for obedience, but they're descriptions of reality from an infinite perspective. Let me unpack that for a second. This means we don't just obey God's laws because there are laws. We obey God's laws because he has a better perspective than us, because God knows best. So we don't just obey them because we need to be obedient. We obey them because we trust that God's perspective is so much better than ours that he clearly has a better point of view than us on how we should live our lives. He knows best because God's not dumb. So to test if we truly have faith in Jesus, we should not think, do I have this weird feeling? No, we need to ask ourselves, do I listen to Jesus? Do I obey him? Because God's laws are not just a motivation for obedience, they are descriptions of reality from an infinite perspective. For example, Jesus tells us to be lowly, to be meek, to be humble. He does this not because he's worried about competing with you for who's like the top dog. No, he does this because he knows what's best for our souls. Jesus knows that if we think we're smarter than everyone else, that we think we have all the right answers, that if we're not kind, that we think too highly of ourselves, he knows that's not going to lead anywhere good. First of all, Jesus knows that if we are prideful, we're probably not going to grow because we're going to think we know it all. Second, Jesus knows that people aren't going to like us if we're prideful because we'll be annoying to them. Prideful people are not fun to be around. So Jesus tells us to be humble, not so that he can keep us low. No, he does it because he knows that living a humble life is living the best way. Jesus tells us to refrain from sexual immorality because he knows the pain of sexual activity outside of marriage. Jesus tells us to be generous because he knows the damage that greed can have on our lives. He knows that we cannot buy happiness, and if we keep putting our trust and fulfillment through finances and through materials, we'll never be satisfied. So Jesus tells us on the front end, don't do that. Because faith, see, faith is trusting Jesus at his word and then trusting him to do what he says. This is what Jesus wants from us. Jesus does not just want familiarity from us. No, he wants us to trust him enough to actually obey him. Our culture in America, our culture knows God's laws. The problem is we struggle with the application of these laws. Faith is not knowledge. Faith is obedience. So if you say you have faith in Jesus, but then also do nothing that he's commanded of you, I'll be honest, I'm not sure if you truly have trust in Jesus. Maybe we just know we need to say we have faith because that's what we grew up hearing in our American culture. We need to have faith in Jesus to get our get out of hell free card. So we say we have faith in Jesus, but words do not mean much to God. Actions do. The beauty of this story, though, is the way that Jesus responds when he's confronted with their lack of faith. Does he do miraculous works to try and convince them of his deity? Does he bring down lightning to show them to get them to finally believe? Does he pine after them and beg them, please believe in me, hometown? Nope. Verse 5 says this. He could do no mighty work there. Jesus doesn't try to get all crazy to show off to get people to believe in him. He's not begging them to believe he's God because Jesus won't force us to have faith in him. Jesus won't force us to have faith in him. Have you ever done something really, really cool and no one believes you? This has happened to me a few times. I remember one very specific time I was in high school, and I was bench pressing, my friends and I loved to lift, and I finally got two plates on each side, which is 225 pounds, they told me I wasn't gonna do it, and I did it, and I was so pumped. But then I told my friends, I went, up to the, like, I went upstairs from the weight room, and I was pumped, like trying to punch them in the chest, like, I did it. And they're like, no, you did not They didn't believe me. I was so mad, I'm like, I just did this, how do you not believe me? I just did, but none of them were in my lifting class, so they didn't get to see it, and they never believed me. And then I went down to do it, and I couldn't do it again. I was so mad. (laughs) There's another time in high school where there's this girl that I liked all throughout high school. She was very popular, and she was considered way out of my league. I was pretty goofy as a high schooler. And she was a friend of mine, but I was always too scared to ask this girl out. See, in high school, I had two groups of friends. I had one group that were my closest friends, the ones who I played football with and goofed around with. Then I also was in show choir, so I had a couple friends that did that as well. And at the end of my time in high school, I got this different girlfriend, not the one that I'd always liked and wanted to date because I thought there's no chance of that, so might as well date someone else. The high schoolers are great, but make dumb decisions sometimes. So if you're in high school, I love you. But one time, right before graduation, one of my show choir friends, my other group of friends, they told me, hey, I talked to that girl that you always liked, and she said that if you would have asked her out, she would have said yes. I was stunned, like no chance. I felt like an idiot. I'm like, I would liked this girl for four years, And she would've dated me if I just would've asked? See, I felt a little stupid, but I was also really pumped. Like, I'm about to tell my friends. I'm about to tell them that she would've dated me, and you guys were all wrong. So I went to tell my other group of friends, my football friends, that I could've dated this girl, and they're like, no chance, bud. (laughs) They're like, you made that up, okay? I know you're trying to be Mr. Hotshot before you graduate, but there's no chance she would've dated you. Nothing I said could convince them. I was like begging and pleading with them. Like, please believe me, I'm cool enough to get a girlfriend. Like, no, you're not want to go to Pizza Ranch to celebrate? Sure, let's go. I wanted so desperately for this group of people to believe me, but they would not. I tried to do whatever it took to get them to believe that I was cool enough, and it didn't work. But Jesus, Jesus is not like this. Jesus isn't going to try to force us to believe in him. No, Jesus doesn't force his message upon people. He just gives them an opportunity. He's an example and an invitation that you can live in this way. He shows them the truth and invites them to join us in his kingdom. And if we choose not to do that, he leaves us to our own devices. He's not going to force us into his will. He just provides an opportunity. So when his hometown doesn't believe in... Jesus could have done anything, right, to get them to believe him. He could have done crazy things. He could have called down lightning. He could have raised up a bunch of dead people. He could have done signs and wonders. So Jesus could have showed off to get them to believe, but he doesn't do that. It says he did no mighty works. The reason being is Jesus doesn't just want us to have faith in him because of what we've seen. Because that's not actually faith. That's just observation. Faith is believing in things that are unseen. Too often people th- will say things like, I'll believe in God if he answers my prayers, like we make a, like a plea with God, like just a, give me a sign, God, answer this prayer, come through, and then I'll have faith in you. That's not faith, that's just responding to a good gift you got from God. God wants to have faith in him despite of what he does. Because it's relatively easy for us to have faith when life is going well, right? The true test of faith is not, do you believe in God and obey him when things are going well? The true test of faith is, do we believe and stand by God when life gets hard? When things aren't going our way, when we don't feel like we're getting our prayers answered, when we feel alone, when we're not feeling the presence of God, that's faith when we keep going and keep pursuing Jesus despite of what our outside external circumstances are like. When we go through trials, we have a beautiful opportunity that even though life's not going well, even though at Psalm 23 we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we say, I'm not going to fear evil because God is with me. Even though I don't feel like I can see him, I trust that God is with me. I'm going to keep obeying him, even though it's not giving me the earthly rewards that I want. That is faith. That is an unforced faith. So if you're here in a place where you don't feel like you're seeing God move, you're not feeling him anymore, it might be because of a lack of faith. Faith, again, is not some weird tingling feeling we get when we're praying. Faith is obedience. God should not have to like, win us over to get us to obey him. We should obey him because we trust him. It's not like a bargaining thing. So for example, if you feel like you're not encountering God, you're not hearing from God, if you feel like you're in a dry season, it might be because you've gotten a little bit too familiar with him. You think you know him, so you don't actually feel the need to spend time with him or to read the Bible because you feel like you've heard it all. But this actually proves we do not have faith to believe what Jesus says in John 15, which says, if you abide in him, you will bear fruit. Too often we think God should speak to us, just force it upon us. It doesn't make sense to us. We don't think we should have to sit down before the Lord and give him room to talk. We're like, he's God, he should just talk all over us. But because we don't give him room to speak, we don't hear from him. Our lack of hearing comes from a familiarity that breeds apathy which leads to a lack of faith because we're not hearing him, which leads to a lack of action and then just this endless cycle where we don't hear from God and our faith keeps decreasing. But the reason not being because God doesn't want to speak because God wants to speak to us is because we're not humble enough to sit before him and faithful enough to be obedient to say, God, listen, I'm here and I'll listen. We have to take a step of faith and give God room to speak. He's not going to force himself upon us. So for... This cycle of not feeling the presence of God to break, what we usually ask is like, God show up and show off. But most of the time, God asks us, will you have faith first for you to show up? Will you have faith to get up a little bit earlier to spend time with me? To give me room to speak, to quiet your soul so I don't have to scream at you? Have faith to sit in silence before the Lord? Or maybe we're struggling to have faith that God can move in our finances. Maybe our financial situation's not great and we're asking for breakthrough. However, we're not seeing God move. Maybe this also could stem from a lack of faith. Because Jesus tells us to trust him, right? Specifically with our finances. Where our treasure is our heart is, so he says he wants our heart, so he wants our treasure. So he tells us to be generous. Generosity requires faith, though. But see, maybe we're in a a financial situation that's not great, so we're so scared to be generous that we don't listen to him on this. So we hold all of our money and we don't trust God with our finances, and then we get mad at God for not giving us breakthrough with our finances. And God is saying, I gave you the keys. I told you, trust me and be generous and I will come through. But we, our lack of trust is not giving God an opportunity to move. We want the breakthrough without having the faith that the breakthrough requires. We want God to do his part, but we're too scared to do our part. Right, yeah. See, this all starts with us trusting God enough to do the things he says. It's trusting God to have faith that he'll provide. In this situation, faith is proven through our action, meaning we're generous, and that gives God room to move. God's not going to force himself upon our situations. He wants us to have faith in him. Too often, we want God to move, and then we'll have faith. However, as we see from the end of our story, the correct order is not God moves, then we have faith. The correct order is we have faith, then God will move. The story ends in verse 6, and it says this, And he marveled because of their unbelief. Our lack of faith can actually hinder what Jesus wants to do in our lives. Our lack of faith can hinder what Jesus wants to do in our lives. Jesus wants to move powerfully in our lives. Jesus went to Nazareth wanting to do something powerful. He wouldn't have went there just to be rejected. that made no sense, right? He went there wanting to do something. He wanted to see his hometown people, his family, enter the kingdom of God. He loved them dearly, and he wanted them to experience life in this way. He wanted them to trust him, which is proven by the fact that when he gets there, he goes to the synagogues and starts teaching because he wanted them to respond to his teaching. He wouldn't just teach to teach, right? He wanted something to happen. So Jesus wanted to do the impossible in Nazareth. Just like he did in every other city he went to, but he couldn't. Their lack of faith hindered what Jesus could do. Their unbelief impacted the moves of Jesus. Jesus is actually only said to marvel two times in all the Gospels. One time it says that Jesus marvels at the centurion's faith in Luke 7, 9. So someone's having faith made him marvel the other time being the passage we just read, when Jesus marvels at Nazareth's lack of faith. So Jesus only marvels really at one thing, our faith, because faith moves Jesus. Jesus does not marvel at people's sinfulness. He's not like, wow, you've done that. You screwed up that bad. You've made that many mistakes. You're messed up. I'm marveling at your dirtiness. Nope, that's not Jesus. He also doesn't marvel at our purity. Jesus isn't like, wow, you followed me so well, you said so many prayers, you're so close to perfect, you are moving me just by you being so holy. No, that's not what makes Jesus marvel throughout the Gospels. It is one thing, either our presence of or lack of faith. Our sin's not what catches Jesus off guard. He's not like, ooh, I didn't see that coming, humans doing something sinful. No, he marvels at our lack of faith because that leads to a hard heart. He's like, wow, you can't even trust me? I created you, I love you, you can't have faith in me. Our hard hearts can quench what Jesus wants to do in our lives. The greatest hindrance to seeing God move in our lives is not our own sinfulness, it's not a lack of church attendance, it's a hard heart. A hardened heart that becomes desensitized to the glory of God. A hardened heart that fails to recognize that this simple carpenter was the son of God. And he wants to do something. A hardened heart that does not pray bold prayers. A hardened heart that doesn't trust God at his word. A hardened heart that does not believe that God can move in power today just like he did in the Bible. Jesus has become too normal for us in our day and age in this context. Jesus is not satisfied with being an afterthought. Jesus wants us to be amazed by him. And our desensitization to him or our normalization of him leads to Jesus not moving in power in the way that he wants to. We have to evaluate our hearts. Are we open to God moving in our lives? Do we want Jesus to mess up our status quo? Honestly evaluate, am I too comfortable with my own life and okay with things going the way they are? Am I content with my life right now? Am I content with how close I am to God right now? Or am I crying out saying, God, I need more. This is never enough. We will never arrive. If we are content with how much Jesus we have in our lives, he's not gonna force himself upon you to be a bigger part of your life. If we're content with where we're at, our hearts will get hardened. We have to be desperate for more of God. We have to be hungry for him to move, never satisfied. If we live a life hungry for God to move, hungry for more of him, he will move in our lives. I promise you, if you want God to show up in your life and are faithful over time to keep doing the right things over and over again, he will move. Hunger is shown through crying out to God, through prayer, through reading books about Jesus, through eating up the word of God through never feeling like we've arrived with Jesus, if we think we've figured this out and we know how to be a good Christian, we should probably check our hearts. We have to always be hungry for more, never thinking we've figured it out. If we don't want to be hungry after Jesus, if we don't want more from our relationship with him, he's not going to force it upon us. He's not going to force us to have faith. He's not going to force us, but then he's also probably not going to move in the way that he could. If we're familiar and comfortable with what God's doing in our lives, he's not going to try to mess up our status quo. That's not the way Jesus operates. He's not going to force something different upon us. He'll just leave us and go on to the next town, just like he did with the Nazarenes. And as we expect God to move and we hunger for him, we will see him move. Our unbelief can limit what Jesus wants to do, but our faith expands what God can do. So maybe you're here this morning, if you're honest, you've been lacking faith. Maybe you've been a little bit too comfortable with where your heart is at with Jesus. Maybe you feel too familiar with him, like, you know, me and God are good. And maybe this message has challenged you a little bit. And maybe you're wondering, is there even hope? Maybe you've been spiritually apathetic for so long. You've become desensitized to God, and you feel like there's no hope for a fresh revelation of Jesus. You've been doing the same things over and over again, nothing permeating your heart, and you just feel stuck. You feel like, I've always known God. I've grown up in the church. I've never seen God move in power like he did in the Bible. He's never done really what I wanted in my heart. And maybe you feel like your heart's just too hard now. It's gone too far. God's not going to do something new in my life. If that's you, we're in luck because there is hope. Jesus can soften the hardest of hearts, and I have proof. Let's go back to our story one last time. In verse 3, it says this, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James? Brother of James. Imagine being James. Try to picture this. Your brother says that he's the Messiah. Your blood brother says he's the savior of the world, says he's the son of God. You're like, nah, bro, you're not the son of God. You're the son of mom. Me too, you're not that special. (laughs) It would be like Daniel saying he's God. I'd be like, ah, you're not God. I don't like that. (laughs) No, no, no. So James is skeptical his whole life of Jesus. He never believes him. And James is like, you're crazy. I'm not going to follow you. I'm not going to be your disciple. James is really familiar with God. I mean, excuse me, with Jesus. But he has absolutely no faith in the claims of Jesus. He's like, you're nuts. And then, oh, ho, 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 then Jesus dies. And then he comes back. And then James's world is turned upside down. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Jesus appeared to James. J- James's familiar brother appeared to him, in a resurrected body, and everything changed. One encounter with the risen Jesus changed everything for James. James went from a hardened heart who doubted that God could move to being full of faith. James then proclaimed Jesus as Messiah. James became the leader of the early church in Jerusalem, the hub where Christianity began. He wrote the book that's called James in the New Testament. James was killed. his proclamation that jesus was the messiah slight tangent the conversion in life of james is actually one of the biggest reasons i see of the validity of the resurrection of jesus it would take something crazy for me to admit and then die for the fact that daniel was god like that's gonna take some like i'm gonna need to see the resurrected body like six times (laughs) he's have to start floating or something for me to think that I'm going to be real. I'm going to be honest. If Daniel died and rose from the grave, I still don't think I'd believe he was God. I'm like, nah, there's something funky here. But but James, James literally was killed on this belief that his brother rose from the grave. If James can believe there is a resurrected Jesus, I have no reason not to believe that. James went from a hardened, familiar but unfaithful brother of Jesus... To a faith filled, obedient martyr for the Messiah. And this can happen for us too. We just need to encounter the risen Jesus. We need to cry out to God. We need to take a step of faith. Trust Him enough to obey Jesus. Try to meet Him. Spend time with God on your own. When we have times of worship, come to the altar to meet with God. Have enough faith to try and draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Jesus wants to meet you, He wants to fill you with faith. Jesus is also not satisfied with your lack of faith. And the reason that we should even want to meet Jesus is because of who he is. Jesus loved us enough to die on a cross for our sins. He paid for our penalty. This should do something to us. We hear it every Sunday morning. But this is not just a cute story, yay, Jesus died on a cross. No, this is the story of a gruesome murder that we all deserved. But we don't have to take because Jesus took that. If the story of Jesus dying for our sins does not do something to us, we have to check our hearts because I think we become desensitized. And Jesus wants to resensitize us to his power and his goodness. Jesus wants to become a very real part of your life. Maybe you need to accept him as Lord for the very first time this morning. Maybe you need to come back to a relationship with Jesus this morning. Or maybe you've been following God and you need to open yourself up to a fresh encounter with him. Have the faith to take the necessary steps to give him room to move Our main idea this morning is this. We must be more than familiar with Jesus. We must have faith in Jesus. More than familiar. See, we as Americans, we can struggle with this temptation to settle for familiarity with God. We know the stories. We know the right words to say. We know the bare minimum we need to do to get into heaven. But Jesus has so much more for us. Jesus wants to move in power. Jesus wants a a deep relationship with you. Jesus does not want to be your sidekick. He doesn't want to be something that you just come to on Sunday mornings. No, Jesus wants to be your everything, your Lord, King, and Savior. Jesus wants us to be full of faith. And if we are full of faith, church please listen, if we are full of faith, if we trust that Jesus can do what he says he can do, if we will have that faith, we will see revival in our day. We will see the kingdom of God spread like wildfire throughout the Cedar Valley. I think Jesus is just waiting. He's like, will some group of people please rise up who believe that I can do what I've said I can do? Will some group of people commit to seeking fresh revelation? Will we commit to never getting bored or used to God? Will we commit to being hungry after Jesus? Jesus is like, will you please commit to believing that I can do the impossible? Because if you don't believe it, I'm not gonna do it, but if you will believe that I can move in power and see the Cedar Valley turn upside down for the kingdom of God, if we will truly believe that and then take the necessary actions to prove our faith is accurate, because if we say we believe God can move, but then never talk to or meet someone who doesn't know Jesus, We don't quite have the faith to believe Jesus can move in their lives, because if we have a friend who does not know Jesus, and we think Jesus is the hope they need, and we truly believe Jesus will help their lives get better, if we believe that, then we're going to tell them about Jesus because we like them and love them, amen? Faith is shown through obedience, and that's having interactions with people and presenting the gospel to them, because we have faith that it'll do something for their lives. And if we will do this, we will see God move, and we will see this this building filled up with people worshiping King Jesus. We'll see your friends, your family, your coworkers come to know God. Wouldn't you love a work environment where everyone loves Jesus? Have the faith to take the necessary steps to see that happen. See I pray, I pray that when Sent Church comes to its end someday, he's not going to marvel at our unbelief. I pray that Jesus is going to say, "Wow, I wanted to do so many cool things through your church, but you didn't believe I would do it." No, I pray that at the end of days, Jesus is going to look at St. Church and he's going to say, "Wow, your faith was pretty cool. You believed that I could do the impossible," and then he'll move accordingly. I want to give us a, a couple ways to respond. We can cut the lights. If you're here this morning, and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, and you haven't taken that first step of faith, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. So with everyone closing your eyes, bowing your heads, on the count of three, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, not as a semblance to me, but as an act to prove your faith. To say, Jesus, I'm all in with you. So if that's you, and you want to give your life or rededicate your life to Jesus, on the count of three, raise your hand as an act of your faith. One, two... let me pray. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, thank you for being a God worth believing in. Jesus, thank you for loving us so much to die. Jesus, thank you for Easter Sunday, and we thank you for the weeks after, God, where we get to celebrate what you did and live in the resurrected life. We love you so much, Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you would all stand with me, we're going to worship together again. And like we said, faith is an action. And so if you're here this morning and you want to see Jesus move in your life, if you want to live a life of faith, I'm going to challenge you to have your actions back up your words. And when we worship Jesus through this next song, I'm going to challenge you to worship in a way that might be unfamiliar with you. Maybe it looks like raising your hands for the first time. Maybe it looks like coming to the altar to pray out and cry out to God. Maybe it looks like getting on your knees, laying down. It doesn't matter what it is. The actual physical action is not what's important. It's that you have the faith to do something. So do something this morning to, to symbolize what God is doing inside of your heart and that you have faith in him to move. So that's my challenge for you as we worship in this last song is that you will let your faith fuel you to action and worship God accordingly. Jesus, we love you so much. We thank you that we get to have a relationship with you. We thank you that you are a God worth giving everything for.